and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're listening to an interview that you and I did with Patty Smith. Kind of, I, I felt a little starstruck. Mm-hmm. Did too. you? Of course. I mean, legend struck, not just a <laughs> star, a legend. A legend who was so generous and so kind and so fun to talk to and who, I don't know if this will make it to the show, but at the end of the show, called us cool. (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty thrilling. Well, yeah, so she she came on the show to talk to us about her Substack, which is this new project that she's doing where she's writing books and publishing it serially via a subscription newsletter service, essentially. And she also sings songs on it. She does some book recommendations. She reads poetry by other people. So we had this opportunity to talk to her about this brand new project. Yeah, and it was great, as we were saying. And just, I can see Patty, like, she's a great performer. I could see why she is who she is. She was just a delight to speak with and and funny and... I had a lot of good stories. Have you seen Patty perform, Kate? I have. What is your memory of that performance? It was in Hudson, somewhere in Hudson, maybe circa somewhere in the aughts. And I mm-hmm. do remember being like really blown away. In a way, I don't want to diss on Bob Dylan, <laughs> <laughs> who's, you know, a, a bit older than than Patty, but not not by much. And it's like, I remember going to see Bob Dylan and just being so disappointed. And like, he just didn't seem to care very much about the audience, about connecting. I mean, I, I was in yeah. nosebleeds I, and I have friends who will differ and who love to go see Bob play and stuff. Uh, and I don't know why I'm connecting the two, I guess just right. Cause they're these like rock legends. And sometimes you think with a rock legend, maybe they're not going to like give it to you. You know, they're just, they're kind of resting on their rock legend laurels and, and they don't, and they don't really go there anymore. But Patty, you know, she went there. And it was an amazing performance, as I remember. And I was, and it was pretty intimate. It was actually like a small, it was just like in a club. You know, so cool. we were standing and and I was close to the stage. Yeah. And I just was really into it. How about you? Oh, uh, yeah. I've also seen her perform. I saw her perform at a at a Tibet charity gala that I ended up in. Yeah, she was like a like a little tornado. Not a little. She's not little. <laughs> she was like a tornado on the stage. She like moved around. She kicked. She spit. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. I thought she was really fantastic to watch and does not rest on her rock star laurels. No, she she really doesn't. Yeah, she's so present. All right. Well, shall shall we listen to this conversation? Yeah, because I, I could keep on going on, but we should Same. listen. To it. Yeah, let's listen. Okay. honored to be speaking with the musician, writer, poet, artist, and all-around legend Patti Smith today. In addition to her 1975 masterpiece, Horses, which has been selected for preservation in the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress, she's released 10 other studio albums, including Easter, which is one of my favorites, Dream of Life, and most recently, Benga. She's also the author of over 20 books of both poetry and prose, including Just Kids, the memoir of her relationship with Robert Maplethorpe, which won the National Book Award in 2010, M Train, and Year of the Monkey. Among many other honors, 
In 2005, Smith was named a commander of the Order of Arts and Letters by the French Ministry of Culture. And in 2007, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She joins us to discuss her latest work, The Melting, an extended piece of prose she began releasing last spring in serial form via the internet platform Substack. The Melting, started in the early days of the pandemic, finds Smith alone in her apartment, her world tour having just been canceled. Yearning for the freedom of travel but stuck at home, her living space begins to yield to other spaces, to dreams, literature, memory, reflection, and fictions. The melting of the title refers not just to global warming, but to time itself. Thanks so much for being here, Patty. That was so nice. I mean, especially the end. I hadn't thought of that. I like that definition of what the melding is. Thank you. Oh, but hello. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Thank you for being here. Patty, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about how you decided to really pursue this project and why. Well, it's a dual answer, I suppose. One is the melting itself, which is only a part of my substack, but a very important part to me really started as a sort of a journal, a pandemic journal. It was quite literal at the beginning, but I don't stay literal too long. (laughs) So, you know, soon this simple journal started to go into different dimensions and all the things I was thinking about seemed to permeate it. My concern about climate change, my concern about the melting of the Arctic shelf, the fires that were happening in California, the pandemic itself. What happened was I didn't start to write a book. It was a journal. And then I got drawn into, as Kate said, into other dimensions, into other worlds. But I didn't have any plan for it. I just felt Mm -hmm. compelled to write. I write every day. And then losing a world tour and being isolated, I was writing even more. And at the same time, I was approached by Substack if I wanted to, you know, try to do something in their format, which I had never seen. And I wasn't quite sure. But then I thought I had started writing whatever this book was in little episodes and journal entries. Maybe it would be the perfect place for it. So I thought that really Substack might be a nice home for what became the melting. And then I got very wrapped up in it because I started thinking of like the people who wrote episodically, you know, in the 19th century, Arthur Conan Doyle wrote Sherlock Holmes that way in magazines. And so did Charles Dickens and Joe March in Little Women, an episodic writer. And so I entered it in that spirit I just felt like I like that kind of having in my imagination people waiting for the next episode. So that's how I merged with Substack. And it's grown. It's evolving even as we speak. And when you write episodically, are you taking feedback from readers and integrating things that they ask for? Because I know that's kind of famous in Charles Dickens, like people would tell him what they wanted or they would get mad about certain entries. How does that form? influence what you write? The people more influence the whole arc of my Substack. The way they influence the melting is just that they get it. You know, sometimes it goes into very abstract spaces or very obscure areas. There is a body of people, a reoccurring people that refer to it or they'll bring in other poems or things that they know about that might enhance it or show their 
knowledge of what I'm writing about. But their comments are more in the line of encouragement. They inspire me to keep going and to keep pushing and pushing myself and taking my character, which is, of course, myself, further and further into whatever worlds are available to the imagination. How they help form the arc is I do ask them periodically a lot of questions. What do they want? What would they like? I started this really just to write, and then I noticed people really like if I sing to them. They really like at night if I'll, you know, tell them a little story or read a little poem late at night. Even if my voice is a little hoarse or I'm a bit sleepy, they don't mind if I make mistakes in the stuff. I don't have to do anything perfect. If I'm late, they forgive me. And so I've really tried to craft the free, because you can be a free subscriber and get a certain amount of posts. You can't get the melting and a lot of other related material. But I try to see what, really, what makes people happy. The thing that I've really learned is they, I've never considered myself a great reader or anything, but they like if I read to them. The other night I read them something, it was Virginia Woolf's Passing Day. So I read them something from The Waves before I went to sleep. If they want more songs, if sometimes I'll say, what songs as a singer would you like me to cover? They'll send me all these ideas. And I've actually learned a few of these songs that they sent me that I never heard of and really embraced. Or what would you like me to do if they say, we'd like to hear more about how you wrote all the songs that you've done. I could do an entry every week and tell them the backstory of, you know, my Blake in year, the backstory of because the night, the backstory. So I want them to tell me what they would like to receive in their mailbox or on their app, because the performer part of me is there for the people. And if they want a certain thing and I can make them happy, I can give it to them, I'll do it. In terms of the writer, well, I'm gonna write the way I want and they'll have to stay in step with me, but I'm not going to readjust that. That brings up something I wanted to ask about, which is, you know, that I think the pandemic for writers was a lot of the same in some sense. Maybe if that was someone's vocation, your life didn't change that much because normally you're alone so much anyway, but then you're very much a writer, but then you have this whole other side, which is that you're a performer and that you play to huge amounts of people and that you get energy from people. And I've known that you've had periods in your career where you've not been out in public as much. 16 years. (laughs) Yeah. So you took some time off performing. And I was just wondering what that balance has been for you in the past in terms of writing or writing songs. If being in front of people gives you an energy that then allows you to work, or if you really need to kind of cocoon to work, how have you navigated that in the past? Well, my favorite thing is to cocoon while in motion. Because I can cocoon in chaos. I like to write on a moving train. I like to write in a hotel room. I like to, I'll sit in the airport and write. I like to write in motion. And I'm not a very social person, but I like, I like a din. I love to write in cafes. I've done the lion's share of my work on the move, you know, and sometimes I'll finish my work with the band and there's a hotel that I really like, you know, anywhere. It could be Poland. It could be Nice. And just stay there for four or five days and work. The pandemic not only took my 
ability to connect with people through performance and, of course, make a living for my people. But for me, the worst thing was it took away my mobility. At the time, I was 73. I have a bronchular condition, so I was in the top tier of risk people. So I was really shut in. I mean, really was in like almost quarantine lockdown for a year and a half. And I found it very challenging because I live alone. So a lot of pacing. I've said before, I did. I felt like a wolf, you know, a caged wolf because just pacing around my rooms or watching British detective shows. But writing has been a great outlet for me. That's why the Substack was really great. I write anyway, but all of a sudden I had people. I have that also in my Instagram, but it's like, it's to have people that are responding to work you've done. I sing them a song a couple of weeks ago, or I sang my Blake in year or something on my Substack, you know, and then I get a lot of messages back from people. It's not that I crave praise or anything. I don't need that. But I like the fact that there's some community that I can feel and feel that I'm maybe magnifying their day or doing something that is inspiring them or making them feel less lonely. But it was very hard. I like traveling. I like hotels. I like trains and cafes. So I certainly miss that. That's why sometimes then I make them up. (laughs) In the melting, I have a favorite place in Berlin. It's the Pasternak. It really exists but it became like the hub of where I was like interacting and writing. So I projected a cafe for myself. I think we all sort of ended up with like coping mechanisms that we didn't anticipate having maybe, particularly with things that we need to survive. I was curious about how you felt jumping into something, a project that is so unformed because so much of your previous work, I think, you know, we have a book, that it's pretty self-contained songs that are follow a certain structure. They end (laughs) pretty quickly. And this is so wide ranging. It's so varied that I wonder if there's, you just reached a point in your work where that felt a little bit easier, or if you have no anxieties about something like that. All the artist has is process. Everything else is for the people. You do a book and then it belongs to the people. You record an album, you do a concert, for the people. What the artist has for himself is process. Mm-hmm. And really, it sort of opens up. It's fluxian. It's almost like I'm having an audience for my process. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I like about the melting. I've never, I'm a very solitary writer. I might write in a noisy cafe, but I'm still very solitary and people don't read it. And for people to be reading things as I'm going on, or make taking a left turn, or I have to tell them one week, look, I'm stuck. My character is like frozen. I can't go on. I'll go on. But that's been really interesting. It's like, you know, having people there during your sound check, or if people were sitting in a room while you're trying to write a song. And I like it. For this particular thing, they spurred me on because really trying to push myself every day, you know, often alone, day after day after day with no one expecting anything, no one waiting, no one knowing what I was up to. But now I have this this little community that, you know, they, they, and it's 
they're from all different parts of the world too, which, you know, there's a few people from Australia and someone from Poland and somebody from Estonia and people in LA or London. It gives me the illusion of being a semi on the road. It's an interesting way of sharing process. Yeah, you say flux. I noticed that a big theme, especially early on in the melting, is shedding. You, know, you talk about shedding objects, but then also there's a lot of other shedding that's happening. And I, I mean, you use the word many times. And there's this part where you're trying to get rid of all these precious objects that you have on your desk, which I was thinking like, wow, how could you? That's really brave, especially for a writer. It kind of shows a lack of superstition which is something else that comes up here, which is just like the focus on working to get rid of kind of precious talismans. It's like, okay, I don't really need these. They've all been replaced by new precious. (laughs) (laughs) I see. But we're different. I have like some wonderful things. I have a signed letter of Edgar Allan Poe and I put it in my flat files away and I took all the stuff. And then what winds up there instead? I found this old drawing that my daughter did with masking tape taped in the same place. Or there's a stone that I found in the ground that I had a strange feeling from, you know, that wound up becoming a meteor in the melting. So, you know, there's always new talismans, but I am quite superstitious. That's why I like going to hotels. I look in my room and all my stuff, every single thing is something. This was Sam Shepard's. This was my husband's. You know, this was my son when he was six years old. This is belonged to my mother. And they're all so precious. And then I go to a hotel room. It's a clean slate. That's why I like traveling. But I'm super superstitious. But then you also have a line here in the melting where it says that you'll counter any omen by simply getting to work, which I really appreciated. And this idea that superstition doesn't really need to exist as long as you can work. That's beautiful. And that's actually something I was thinking about the other day. You have also milestones in your life. Like for instance, March 9th is Robert Maplethorpe's passing day. So I acknowledge that it's his passing day, but how I acknowledge it, Robert and I worked a lot together. We were both workers. We had both had a strong work ethic. Other days that doesn't even have a special thing to it, I might all of a sudden miss him and cry. But March 9th is the date he died, yet it was not an emotional day for me. I was working, I you know, looked at a photograph of him, but I didn't even do a post about him. I didn't do that. He was with me in how I was working. Sometimes we have to have both the cognition or both the sensitivity to recognize signs or to use signs, but also have the interior strength not to let them rule you. Like, I don't have to be sad on the anniversary of my mother's death. I can be happy just that I knew that she was my mother. She was awesome. And also certain signs. You can look at them and think, well, this could be a bad or good omen, But if it's a bad omen, you think, okay, so own it, own it. And as a writer, if I feel like I've been assaulted by a bad omen, I'll transform it in a work. There's a little James Joyce poem. It's in the poems penning each. I can't remember the poem, but I remember a line from it. The signs that mock me as I go, you know? And so I always thought about that. I read it when I was young and I thought, ah, 
some signs are going to be like in fairy tales. They're going to open you up to a new good world. Other signs are like tricksters. So you have to look at all of these things, you know, cubistically, if that makes sense. <laughs> Three-dimensional. Yeah. First of all, I haven't had anyone except, well, and sometimes they'll send a quote. I haven't talked to anyone who actually quoted melting lines to me. I'm like, so it's so exciting and fun. Thank you. Just as an aside. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, that brings up a question that I had about your work is that a lot of it seems to sort of deal with grief head on and how one processes it and works through it. And I wonder if the pandemic and partly perhaps this project has informed your understanding of how we work through grief, maybe especially when it's on such a large scale and when we are thinking about not just the pandemic, but as Kate said in the introduction, the planet, animals, the many things that we may have to grieve over. I mean, I lost my best friend when I was about eight. She was a couple years older. So I learned about loss very early. I, of course, lost my brother and my husband and my pianist, Robert. I've lost so many people in my life, even lately. Friends that I thought I would have in my old age, like Sandy Perlman and, and Sam Shepard my parents, my dog. <laughs> but what I've tried to do, I mean, the shock of loss is something no one can do anything about it. We all process loss in a different way, the initial pain of loss or shock of loss. But I've just learned, you know, these people, all the people that I've lost, I was really privileged to know. So I just try to, I walk with them. And I'm going to feel sad. I felt so sad about my husband the other day. He's been gone for like 25 years or something. I missed him so much. And I thought, wow, I'm still just as painful as it was 25 years ago. But also, I'm so lucky that I knew him. And then we had children and all the things we experienced. You know, and I always tell people, there's no rules in grieving. You might like find that if you go shopping, you feel better. <laughs> you know, you find that maybe you're not crying at all. And three years later, you're crying all the time. It's just the main thing is to be, is to try to eclipse grief with gratitude. That's pretty much my philosophy is to, again, eclipse grief with gratitude because in gratitude, there is also joy, thankfulness. And so that's like a canopy over missing people or losing people. If we're grateful for anything, you know, grateful just to be alive. Maybe we have, you know, health issues. Maybe, you know, we've been dealt a bunch of bad cards. But as long as we have our breath, there is some chance or ability to change to make things better. And I think in talking about the pandemic, Really, the pandemic, I didn't think of death so much. I thought really more of responsibility. I know a lot about pandemics. And I went through, there was a pandemic in 1958, which isn't so famous, but I almost died in that pandemic when I was 10. I was in quarantine. They painted our door yellow. My siblings had to be rushed out. My mother no one was allowed to be with me, but my mother, I was like very, very sick. 
And I remembered everything that had to be done within the context of that, let alone 1918, let alone all the various pandemics that humankind has suffered. And one has to educate themselves within something like that. We were asked to do sacrifice. We were asked to you know, do a lot of things that were very, very difficult for people. And some people couldn't even handle it emotionally or mentally. But life is like that. It's going to give you huge, huge challenges. We're facing with the environmental crisis a challenge that people still don't realize the immensity. Every single thing that we do, eat, touch, and embrace is going to be touched and is being touched by the ravages of climate change. And within the pandemic, we were given certain guidelines. You know, I didn't like them. I didn't like being holed up. I don't like wearing a mask. I really don't like getting vaccines. But I did whatever I could in terms of my global responsibility. I don't know if that answers it, but I wasn't attaching the pandemic to death. I was attaching it to life. I wanted to live. I have a bronchial condition. I'm like older. I had to do certain things to make sure I stayed okay. And in that way also didn't endanger people that I love or become a burden or a responsibility to people I love. So, you know, I think that with any crisis, we have to stand up and figure out, all right, there's a crisis going on. What is my responsibility or what can I contribute or how can I be useful in this crisis? So I guess that's what I was thinking about. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Patty Smith, author of The Melting. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We are joined by No Violet Bulawayo today. Her latest book is a novel, it's called Glory, and she's joining us to give us a book recommendation. No Violet, what book are you going to recommend? The Sex Lives of African Women by Nana Dakoa Sekiyama. I really haven't uh, read anything like it in its treatment of African women's lives, uh, sex lives and sexualities. It breaks silences, it challenges stereotypes, it dismisses taboos, it throws social norms out the window. And most importantly, it um, affirms our complexity and it gives us shelter and room for healing. I think it's such a political book and very relevant in a world that doesn't always honor the complexity of of African women, especially when it it comes to our sex sex lives and sexualities. That's a fantastic recommendation. No, Violet, can I ask you to tell me the title of the book again and the author? The Sex Lives of African Women by Nana Dakoa Sekiyama. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with No, Violet Bulawayo. Her latest is a novel called Glory. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Patty Smith, author of The Melting. 
I thought that the reference to global warming and the melting is um, different, had a different tone to me than a lot of global warming literature that I've read, partly because it it didn't seem to be so much in a linear time frame. It felt very, you know, it's kind of like the melting moves around a lot. It has a lot of historical figures. It it doesn't so much put the end on, you know, the end of a line that we're all headed towards, which I think makes it unbearable. It kind of opens up time. So it's like happening in this much more capacious frame, which somehow for me, as I'm reading it, um, it's easier to face if I'm thinking about it just as a part of like a larger history, not just this endpoint where the world will be over. So I thought that was interesting and just this this way of kind of incorporating such a large reference and frame of time in your work, which is something that you've always, I think, had this connection to through poetry, through Rambeau, through, you know, this set, this really deep sense of time in, in how you write. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and also, you know, when you became aware of global warming, if you remember, like when, when it dawned on you that that was happening, like where you were, how old you were. Well, I mean, that was a really, what you said was really interesting because it also made me realize that I have a horror of what's happening. I have a horror. In fact, in episodes to come, number four, who we're looking for as, as well as the young scientist, compiles, you know, a whole dossier of, you know, which I got from the news from for like three years I've been getting things out of the news of what's happening and looking at these it's like page after page after page after page it's horrifying and i had to create that is the one thing i i i worry about all the time so i have to create the melting sort of creates space as you said to make it bearable it's sort of um it doesn't poeticize things but it creates possibilities and the idea of guardians, you know, the League of the Good or the guardians who are trying to, like a metropolis, they're trying to, they're looking at what we're doing and they're trying to find ways for us to expand our thinking and make change. But, um, but you know, yeah, what you said, it's really, it's really good what you said. It's, um, I'm glad that you felt that because I was truthfully not just trying to do that for the reader, but for myself. I need to create space. It's always what I've done as an artist. When I did, when we recorded horses, I was creating space. I didn't think, you know, I thought I would just do it and then other people would like take that space and keep expanding, you know, and not let, you know, poetry infused rock and roll die. <laughs> you know, I didn't expect, I didn't know people would even remember horses, but it's always when I sense we're being closed in or I sense containment, I need to break through it and uh, create space. And um, to the answer to the other question, when I was a kid, uh, and this is probably in the 50s, the late 50s. I think it was 3M Corporation came to our school to show us 
the stuff of the future. <laughs> you know, it was three different corporations and it was all about the new things that were going to happen. And this is the late 50s. It was like disposable pens, disposable razors, um, you know, um, the new um, paper towels that, you know, didn't tear. Um, <laughs> you know, it was all these new things and everybody was looking at them like, oh, that's so cool. And I was horrified at every single thing. To me, a pen was precious. And I, I would say to them, well, what happens when there's no more ink? Oh, you throw it away. And I was like, you throw it away? You know, because I came from a lower middle class family and a pen. You had a pen and you got your little refill or you got ink and it was like precious. You know, that was your pen. You didn't just use it and then toss it away. And um, that bothered me. Also, they started making plastic utensils, um, Melmac, they called it. It was dishwasher safe, you know, instead of glass, instead of china, instead of that we always used. And housewives in America just went mad for this stuff in the 50s. They wanted to get rid of all their grandmother's old china and use like, um, you know, this Melmac, this plastic stuff. And I just felt like aesthetically, even though I didn't know the word aesthetically, probably, it wasn't as beautiful. It, your cocoa didn't taste as good in it. And I thought all this plastic stuff they're making is, is awful. And then we could fast forward a little. When I was a kid in South Jersey, I lived near the ocean and we go to the ocean. You could smell the salt. If you were in the water, it would almost burn you. There was clams and all over the place and millions of jellyfish, seashells everywhere. And this is like Ocean City, Atlantic City, you know, the, the southern coast, I mean, the east coast down in South Jersey. And, and I remember like being a little older or maybe, maybe 18 or 20 or in my, and I'd look and I think, it doesn't smell the same. Where's all the clams? And now, there's none. You don't see clams. You hardly see shells. There's maybe a jellyfish, you know, dead on the shore. And that to me is like frightening. I get frightened when I used to have all kinds of New York City, tons of cockroaches. Where'd they go? Where's the bugs? There's so much pesticide that the bugs are all dying. You go into a field and yeah, I used to get stung by bees and stuff, but they make honey, they keep things going. And you can go walk through a whole field and not see one bee, maybe two butterflies. We're used to see millions of them. And so that's not exactly, um, it's not a scientific or technical answer to global warming, but what it is, is noticing change that is not good change, that it's frightening. It's frightening when you go out in a field and you don't really smell the flowers. They don't have that same smell. It's a very dull smell because they've been modified and modified and modified. And um, anyway, I started noticing these things very early and I talked to my mother about it. And my mother said, Patricia, what you're going sensing now, I'm sensing threefold. When I was a kid, I could walk out 
by the sea. There was lavender everywhere. You smelt the salt air, you smelt the lavender. There's all kinds of honeysuckles, all these smells in this, you know, in abundance. You could go out with a little, little with a basket and come back with, you know, filled with clams. And, um, and she said, for what looked, seemed great to me, she had already felt there was a loss. So, um, and now we're in, uh, we've lost, we're losing, we're losing ground. You know, when you go to the ocean and there's nothing but blue green algae and you see five or six sea dead so seagulls laying there. And, you know, it's just, it's, and people laugh at me. I, I used to talk about this 20 years ago. I remember doing when I first started performing after my husband died and I was doing interviews, talking about the bee population and stuff. And they, they said, you know, they wanted to talk about terrorism. And I would say, look, I understand terrorism, but environmental terrorism is way more, is way scarier to me. So of course they thought I was terrible, you know, that I cared more about bees than human life. These are equatable. We lose these species and the quality of our life is going to diminish, is diminishing. So that's my, my little soapbox answer, very unscientific answer, but you know, hey. a person who's been on the planet for 75 years, that's, that's what I'm seeing. Yeah, yeah, it gives a good sense of it. A lot of the uh, a lot of your Substack is reading the work of other writers and other poets. There's also a very sweet video recently that you put up where your cat uh, very rudely interrupted <laughs> your. Um, <laughs> yeah, Cairo was not behaving that day. <laughs> Recommend uh, you were doing a book recommendations, um, and so I was curious. Can you? Talk a little bit about the writers that you feel like are really sustaining you right now or that you turn to on a regular well, basis. I read all the time and I re read I reread all the time. And often I'm also like I have like a, a jump in being brain. So uh not not only am I always working on four or five projects at the same time, but reading a few different books. And there's books everywhere. I I can't be without a book. If you go in the bathroom, there's books on, there's books in the bathroom in case I forget to bring a book in the bathroom. There's books in every, books in the kitchen, books on the kitchen table. And uh, I take books, the first thing I do in the morning, if I want to go have coffee somewhere, is it's not getting dressed or getting ready or finding the money. It's what book to take to the, to the cafe is like, you know, or what books to take on the road. Right now, what am I reading right now? Well, I'm reading some books actually that were sent to me by publishers to um, maybe say a few words about. Uh, New Directions sends me a lot of books. Um, uh, also, uh, Gregory Corso is having a new book of poetry come out and it's called The Golden Dot. So I've been reading that. I was He was a good friend of mine and I was so excited to see all these unpublished poems of Gregory's that he was working on at the end of his life. Funny enough, I uh, I had lost my, I couldn't find my copy of Pinocchio that I've had since I was seven. And so I had to tear everything apart and I finally found it. So then I started rereading it and was up half the night reading Pinocchio. So um, I read the Bible a lot. My sister is a Jehovah Witness. She's a very devout Jehovah Witness. 
and it's well, it is a scripture-based uh, religion. And we read the Bible together or talk about different stories, or I'll I'll ask her, I'll have a question about King David, and then she'll go into, you know, different scriptures to show me and, and to, to, to answer my question. And um, so I read a lot of uh, scriptures to keep up with her. And also because I've always read the Bible um, for different reasons. It just depends, you know. I I will say that I read almost 90% fiction. I'm not, hmm. the only nonfiction I usually read is biographies. Uh, like I want to reread this um, um, biography of, uh, of Proust. Uh, I have that on my table, but I did read, a, uh, I look into this book, this book, Figuring. Do you know that fi- the book, Figuring? Um, no, no, Mary, so. um, she, she has this uh, thing on Instagram called Brain. Um, I follow- Was it Brain Pickings? Yeah, Brain Picking. She's oh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. She wrote a book called Figuring. It's, I think, it's, all, it's like all stories about women that, you know, sculpt, uh, the, the sculptors and, and scientists and mathematicians and and all of their strife and how you know they they were never known and I learned about so many interesting uh, um, artists and uh, mathematicians. Um, I love. Uh, I've been oh I I I've been rereading this book called um, <laughs> Microbe Hunters by Paul de Kroof because it was a, a book I really loved when I was a kid. I actually thought I was going to be a scientist. But oh, um, yeah, but really? I'm really bad in science, so I had to. And I think the only reason I wanted to be a scientist because I read these romantic stories. Like, there's another book called Men in Mathematics by E.T. Bell, and it it's all these romantic stories. Do you know how many mathematicians died of starvation, or you know, before they were 30 because they and or they were made, they were so ahead of their time and the language that they spoke was so far out that people thought they were insane. Um, the stories of math- mathematicians are really amazing. And, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm always reading. The book that I'm really most involved in though, I know I gave you a whole bunch of books. No, this is great, I love it. Is, uh, Nabokov, I love Gogol, and Gogol is birthdays coming up on April 1st. I love him, and Nabokov wrote this little book called Gogol for New Directions. He was given this task, you know, decades ago to write a massive biography of Gogol, but instead he wrote like this really interesting, cranky little book, which is only <laughs> like about as big as Journey to the East, but it's so awesome. And, uh, I've read that uh, uh, a couple of times, so I'm rereading that. And then I'll probably just, that'll draw me to reread some Gogol stories. But um, yeah, I read all kinds of stuff. I was, you know, sometimes I can't sleep and I'll get up and I'll get like, the other night I was, I pulled out Colossus, the Sylvia Plath book and started reading her poems again. And she's so awesome. And um and I read fairy tales. I reread. I have oh, yeah? a lot of my books from when I was a kid. And uh, in fact, one of them, my one of my favorite, it's like the German fairy tales. It says, 
This book belongs to Cray's school, but I stole it. Uh, well, I borrowed it from the school library. And I wrote, not anymore. I was like eight years old, not anymore. So I, um, books led me to crime. Actually, my first real big theft was I had twice, two or three times that I, you know, um, I dipped into the world of thievery and it was all books. And uh, in fact, I got caught stealing a world book encyclopedia uh, from the AMP when I was a kid. I don't know if they still do it for 99 cents. You could get volume, you know, you could get the whole world book encyclopedias. But uh -huh. you know, when so, you know, when you get your groceries, if you bought more than $10 worth of groceries, if you paid 99 cents, you'd get the, you know, a volume of the world book encyclopedia. I wanted encyclopedias so bad when I was a kid. I just thought they were so cool and, and they, they contained everything. And I begged my mother to get one, but truthfully, her budget was so tight um, that 99, she couldn't afford to get me one. Mm -hmm. And then she sent me to the store like a few days later with a dollar bill. Now, back then in the early 50s, $1 would buy two quarts of milk and a loaf of bread. And you didn't get any change because they didn't have taxes. So I had to go there and I was like looking at these encyclopedias and I thought I could just buy it. You know, it's 99 cents, but of course I couldn't. And I put it in my jacket. And I was like a really skinny, woeful looking thing with like long, greasy braids trying to, you know, walk around with an encyclopedia in my coat. So I pay for the bread and, and milk and I'm like walking down the walking home and I feel this, you know, heavy banging on my shoulder and I turn around and it's a giant guy, you know, the security guy. And he goes, let's have it. I'm like, what, what? And he said, you took something. He didn't know what I took. Nobody knew what I took, but they knew I stole something. Uh -huh. And when I pulled out the encyclopedia, <laughs> so pathetic. I think the guy felt so sorry for me. And, uh, but he took it back and, and I said, am I under arrest? And he said, no, but you have to go back and tell your mother. I thought I'm going to get killed. I was so woeful. So I lived about a mile. I had walked walk with the bread and the milk. And I was I walked into the house and my mother said, What's wrong, Patricia? You're white as a sheep. I said, Nothing, nothing. And I was like nauseous. I thought I was gonna throw up. Finally, I told her the truth. And she just looked, she didn't say a word. She didn't say a word. And uh, she told me to uh go and do my homework or whatever, I don't know. So my mother went out. I didn't think about it. My mother went and went across the street. She had some change and she went over and borrowed some more change from the lady across the street. Walked, <laughs> she walked to, she walked to the AMP and talked them into letting me buy, letting her buy the, the encyclopedia volume one of the world book encyclopedia the only one i ever got either the, i think i know everything that starts with a to b but um that's the kind of person my mother was and so getting back to grief 
I'm, we miss her, just wish I could hear her voice one more time. But also, I'm so filled with gratitude for her and the things she did. And believe me, she was tough too. I'm not saying that my mother was like an angel. She could be really tough, but she did things sometimes that that were so thoughtful and, and, and contained so much understanding of me as a person, my little self, and, um, and taught me hopefully how to be a better mother just by those gestures. How did I get into that story? I'm, I'm sorry. Remember, <laughs> such a lovely story. Yeah. Thank you for telling. Are, oh, I've read, what books have I read? Well, I've read volume <laughs> one of the World Looking Encyclopedia. <laughs> I think we should end there before you incriminate yourself anymore. Uh, we don't want to get you in trouble, Patty. So um, <laughs> thank you so much, Patty Smith, well, for speaking with us I today. Know that also that I rambled on about other stuff. We've been speaking with Patty Smith, author of The Melting. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Blodden.